Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, a Hank Matson poem about 19th century Florida cowman Jacob Summerlin was set to music and has earned the 2015 Will McLean Best New Florida Song Contest. Well, it was a marvelous way of life, and it's a life that's uh, slowly but surely dying by the wayside. And uh, if somebody doesn't uh, let people know what it was like, uh, it's just going to be forgotten forever. We'll discuss the Labor Day hurricane of 1935. The Labor Day hurricane holds the record as the most intense storm that ever made landfall in North America. And we'll talk about the Ku Klux Klan in Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Florida became the 26th state in 1845. And folks was proven up and just nicely getting settled in when the nation was at war. And in 1863, the Federals won a battle, cutting Texas off from the Confederacy along with all her cattle. And so it fell to Florida. The duty then was ours to feed the starving soldiers of the Southern Stars and Bars. This next piece was told to a census taker in Taylor County, Florida in 1870. It's called Whisperin' Bill, and it goes like this. So Washington's wantin' a census took. Well, sir, they's three of us livin' here still, me and Ma and our only child, what folks calls Whisperin' Bill. But now Bill can't even tell you his name, so maybe it ain't worth the givin', since them Yankee bullet killed his mind and left his body livin'. But come set a spell, sir, let me tell you about Bill. He just nicely turned thirteen, and a brighter lad back in '63, Taylor County had never seen. Cracker Cowboy poet Hank Matson performs his program at libraries, festivals, and schools throughout Florida. Born and raised in Lake Placid, Florida, Matson says his goal is to preserve Florida history and cracker culture. Well, it was a marvelous way of life, and it's a life that's uh, slowly but surely dying by the wayside. And uh, if somebody doesn't uh, let people know what it was like, uh, it's just going to be forgotten forever. And uh, I think that uh, by letting them know what it was like, it just preserves it, and that's my aim. Hank Matson's poetry is mostly based on historical fact, but he does add some creative embellishment. Well, an old-timer, Buzz Keen was his name, said that uh, he never ever let the truth stand in the way of a good story, and a whole lot of it is just that, but a whole lot of it is based on actual true facts uh, about uh, characters in the state like Jacob Summerlin and Bone Mizell and uh, Hamilton Diston and uh, the Platts and the Flaglers. Um, if you read uh, the book A Land Remembered, uh, that book was a compilation of a whole bunch of people's lives, and those men that I named are in that book. So if, if you want to read a good book about Florida, that's the book to read. 
Hank Matson says much of his poetry is based on his own life and experiences, but he also utilizes other resources. Every book that I could get my hands on about, about Florida, uh, I work uh, for South Florida Community College. I speak to elder hostel folks. So I have uh, worldwide libraries at my fingertips. Uh, anything I want or anything I need, I can get through that library through the loan program. Uh, I can't say enough about libraries all over the place. I mean, uh, if libraries die, uh, there's going to be a lot dies. But uh, like today, uh, people came up to me and they told me some things about when they were kids. And then I go and talk to those people. I travel all over the state uh, speaking to folks who want to tell me things that happened in their lives. And then I try to write things about those things as they, uh, they put them to me so that they'll be remembered also. Hank Matson's live performances center around his poetry, but he also surrounds himself with interesting Florida artifacts and Cracker Cowboy equipment. Well, there's an old McClellan saddle uh, that was a, a Civil War era saddle, and uh, it doesn't have a horn on it. Uh, they did make some McClellan saddles that had uh, brass horns on them to haul cannons around, but 90% of them didn't have a horn. But And right after the Civil War, the cattle that we had here in the state of Florida were so small uh, and the vegetation was so thick, you couldn't rope cattle anyway, so there wasn't really a need for a horn on that on that saddle. So uh, that, <laughs> that McClellan saddle uh, was supposed to keep the rider and the horse cool. But an old-time feller told me that uh, what that saddle did best was turn a baritone into a tenor. Uh, you'll have to look at a McClellan saddle to know what I'm talking about. There's branding irons there. There's masculating tools. I have uh, dehorning tools, uh, uh, f uh, fence pliers for uh, stringing wire uh, on fences. Uh, the fence I was 11 years old when uh, Florida passed a fence law. Uh, up until then, you could ride pretty much any, anywhere where I lived and uh, never see a fence. Uh, you were just expected home for supper, and that was about it. Uh, but uh, then with the advent of the automobile, uh, so many people were running into to cattle. When it first started, if they hit your cattle, uh, they paid you for your cattle. And a $50 uh, cow turned out to be a a hundred dollar cow and uh, so folks didn't like that so now if a cow gets out and uh, somebody hits it it's our fault we have to pay for the damages on the car so th things have changed uh. scholars still debate the origin of the word cracker but hank matson's explanation goes back farther than most it started with shakespeare uh, he in a play king john he he said something about uh, you know the, these crackers were uh, causing his ears to hurt. That's what he said. But he was speaking about Scots-Irish folks. And uh, that's where it started from. When they came over here, the name cracker came with them. Uh, it's a derivative of the Gaelic word crake and means interesting educational conversation. Uh, they have crake houses over there in Scotland and Ireland where people just get together and discuss what's going on in their particular community. Uh, and they do it over coffee and tea, not over some alcoholic beverage. And it's not like uh, crake houses here. I say uh, crack houses, uh, crake houses, and they think uh, I'm talking about crack houses here, but that's not what it is. Uh, and then, uh, of course, uh, it was used as a southern slur for the poor folks who existed on cracked corn. And... Um, what mainly folks think about now uh, is the the cracking of the whip sound. Uh, when when Bone Mizell and Jacob Summerlin drove cattle across the, the country, the people that lived in the town could hear them coming, and the little kids would run and say, Mama, lock up the dogs and chickens because the crackers are coming, and, and you could hear them coming from miles away, and that's how they got to, to be called crackers, and uh, we're proud of that uh, here in the state of Florida, although uh, sometimes people use it in a derogatory manner, and... Uh, that's 
just part of going down the trail, I guess. Here's how Hank Matson explains the origin of the word cracker in his poetry performances. You know, most everywhere I'm called upon to speak, the question, what the heck is a Florida cracker, sure enough does arise. So I studied up some, and now I've become just a whole lot more cracker-wise. History tells us it all started when old Will Shakespeare likened the word cracker to braggart in this here line before his death. I hope you're ready for this. What crackers then are these that so defile the ear with such superfluous abundance of inane bombastic breath? Wasn't that a mouthful? Seems like it'd have been a lot easier to say who the blazes are these windbags, but Will, he had him away with words. Truth is, he was speaking about Scotch-Irish folks. Just as sure as there's whiskey and shamrocks, it's true. And when them feisty folks come over here, why that moniker come over too. And them hot-tempered, prideful pilgrims, they fought and they survived by bragging, bad-mouthing, and fast-talking their way south, where the wisecracker name was contrived. Hank Matson performs his poetry for people of all ages because he feels it's important to preserve Florida history. Well, I mean, I'm selfish about it. I just want somebody to know what the heck went on here before they paved over the entire state and before it gets all paved over. Uh, there are a lot of places. Uh, a sad thing about it, they opened up the Florida Agricultural Museum down here and they cut the budget now and they fired the director. So, uh, you know, here you got a beautiful facility and there's nobody to man the thing, so there's no place for people to go. So by me traveling around the country wherever people will listen to me, uh, I can tell them what it used to be like, and I can make them aware of the fact that it's still going on today. While cracker culture is slowly becoming relegated to history books, museum exhibits, theatrical presentations, and poetry performances, Hank Matson points out that some Florida families who have been working in the cattle industry for generations continue to do so. Yeah, uh, but they have to diversify. I mean, uh, they're, they're, they're selling, a lot of people are selling off property so that their grandkids can get an education. They want them to still come back and keep the old home place and continue to raise cattle, but th they know that when Mother Nature is your boss, uh, she can be a blessing or a curse sometimes, and, and they want those kids to have something else to fall back on, but they still want the business to, to keep going, and that's that's what, what they're doing nowadays. Um, there are a whole lot of places where kids are, don't have an interest in it. But then there are other kids that just love it. I mean, I, I suppose that's like any, any other business. But it's, it's tough to get started, almost impossible for a kid that's not a member of a family to get started here because you couldn't afford to buy the land. A cracker cowboy himself, Hank Matson's most poignant poem is about how his family lost their land. It's called Progress. Yes, change is inevitable. But when I hear folks talking about how the price of progress is change, I sort of lose my composure. Because you see, the bank took every dollar and all of the change my parents had, and still no progress at all was made towards fending off foreclosure. Aw, oh, some folks said it was fate. Still others a run of bad luck that forced Mama to have to wait tables and Daddy to start driving truck. Then that awful summer, them dozers demolished in less than a day our entire family history, 
and then they just hauled it all away. Now today, where the barn and the old home place once stood, they's a gigantic discount department store, and I sure wished I could turn back the clock, but I can't, I guess, roll back time or stop progress. But I do go back there, at least a couple of dozen times a year, to that marvelous place where I cut my first calf and roped my first steer. Cause you see under them acres of parking lot were the groves, the pens, and grandma's garden plot. <laughs> and out back in the shed where Paul Kepi's car, I smoked and got sick on my first cigar. And up in the loft where the barn once stood, my teenaged cousin Dory Croft sneaking up on womanhood, taught me when I was just ten all she knowed about kissing. And right then, I quit hating gals, wondering what else I'd been a-missing. Well, anyway, here the other day, back in the grocery department, I closed my eyes and I swear I could still see where the cane press and boiler both used to be. I could see the old mule a-trudging and a-toilin', I could smell that hot syrup a bubbling and a boiling, and sweet, sweet memories flooded my mind and flowed down into my heart till I got knocked to the floor by a damned shopping cart, loaded plum full of two snot-nosed screaming skypers, cigarettes, beer, and disposable diapers. Then my assailant, she asks if I'm hurt, and I'm not but soon security helps me out to the parking lot, and he says he's noticed and he's curious why I come in twice a month, but I don't never buy. So I tell him, I'm probably cutting my nose off to spite my face, but I'll never spend a dime in this here place, cause on the side of your giant conglomerate once set the sweetest little spread in the sunshine state. I'm visiting granddaddy's ranch, I say, where my paw was born, and I used to play. Well, then that security man, he shook my hand, saying, come often as you like, friend, I understand. So then I head for my truck, trying to fight back a tear, and above all the racket I swear I can still hear the old dinner bell clanging and the screen door a-banging. Ma'll have fried chicken and biscuits for sopping, sweet tater pies with marshmallow toppin and tomorrow pa's fixin to kill him two hogs then in the evening relaxin we'll laugh whilst the dogs romp in the yard and roll in the dirt and i'll study on gettin me a new shirt to wear to the very next comin up dance where a ten-year-old boy might just get the chance ifin he's lucky to try sure enough what all he's just learnt about kissing and stuff. But then I start the truck, and I'm sick inside, knowing how few hands today own the lands that they ride. And as I progress towards my heavily mortgaged half-acre ranch, with its three million head of fierce fire ants, I reckon I'm adapting to change, but at one hell of a cost. Cause all's I can still see is the old home place we lost. 
Hank Matson is known as the Cracker Cowboy Poet. His poem, When This Old Hat Was New, was set to music by Dana and Susan Robinson and won the 2015 Will McLean Best New Florida Song Contest, selected first out of 42 entries. I am an old cow hunter, boys, come and listen to my tale. Memories now are twice as sweet of the old Cracker Trail. Jacob Summerlin, we rode fences then were few. When I was just a skinny kid, and this old hat was new. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Florida's hurricane season lasts from June 1st through November 30th. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, one of the most devastating hurricanes to ever hit Florida was the Labor Day hurricane of 1935. Yeah, that's right. In fact, the uh, Labor Day hurricane is actually the uh, holds the record as the most intense storm that ever made landfall in North America. Uh, it had sustained winds of 185 miles per hour with gusts reaching 220 miles per hour. Uh, the storm surge alone was between 18 and 20 feet tall, uh, and it caused unbelievable devastation uh, focused mainly on the Keys. Now, the storm itself uh, was formed just west of the Bahamas uh, right around uh, September 1st and quickly moved uh, through the Florida Straits and made landfall uh, in the upper Florida Keys, focused mainly on upper Matacombe Key in the early hours of, of uh, Labor Day. What's interesting about this particular storm, of course, we know hurricanes are incredibly large storms that are relatively uh, slow moving. They form in the Atlantic and then make their way towards the Caribbean, often making landfall along the eastern seaboard. But this storm uh, formed rather quickly, uh, but was also incredibly concentrated. So the strength of the storm was really focused on uh, really the worst possible place, the Florida Keys, uh, these low-lying series of islands that were at or, or just above sea level. So when you have uh, 18 to 20 feet of, of storm surge washing over these islands, the small communities, for example, Isla Morada, which was a small community at that time, was completely wiped off the map. It, it simply disappeared. Uh, so the citizens who were living in the Keys, which only, in the upper Keys, they only numbered in, in a few hundred uh, many of them lost their lives and at the very least lost everything that they owned. Of particular note also is a group of, or was rather a group of uh, World War I veterans who were working for uh, a federal relief program. Remember in 1935, this is the height of the Great Depression. So there were a number of Americans who were out of work uh, in FDR and the federal government uh, were uh, trying uh, uh, to get a lot of these people back to work. And one of the big problems were um, uh, these veterans who were not only out of work, but many of them uh, today we might uh, classify them as having post-traumatic stress disorder and other uh, psychological disorders, but they couldn't hold down a job. Uh, and it was becoming a problem in, in D.C. So they decided, well, let's round up a few of them. We'll send them down to the Florida Keys and they can work on a, uh, a road project that would connect many of the Keys. 
Uh, well, fortunately, these veterans were uh, working down in the Keys at the wrong time uh, during the height of hurricane season. Uh, and even though there was a relief train that was sent down to the Florida Keys, it never made it in time. In fact, the train itself was washed completely off the tracks, and hundreds of those veterans perished uh, during that Labor Day hurricane. And you have some uh, very interesting photographs and documents here relating to that uh, horrible train wreck. You also have here a signed copy of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas book, Hurricane. She's best known, of course, for Everglades River of Grass, but uh, you have her book, Hurricane, here. Yeah, that's right. And like I said, because there are so many veterans who were killed uh, and it seemed like uh, there was very little emergency response, or at least the emergency response was very fractured and resulted in so many deaths after the hurricane, um, it really gripped the national attention. So a lot of famous writers, including Douglas, Ernest Hemingway uh, wrote an article that was published that was uh, implying that the uh, Florida Emergency Relief Administration was at fault for not uh, acting quickly enough to evacuate these veterans. But Douglas published a book in 1958, which is a, kind of a history of, of hurricanes and talks about the impact that hurricanes have had on uh, uh, American history. But there's a chapter uh, just on this 1935 hurricane. And I want to read uh, just a few passages. It gives you an idea of how intense this storm actually was. She writes here, quote, The barometers were still going down. The narrow land shook a little within the waves' heavier pounding. At the veterans' barracks, the men packed up and moved out to huddle along the railway embankment, waiting for the train. They had to cover their faces because the stinging sand began to draw blood. Every once in a while, one would say, It's coming, I hear it. It was the wind coming in faster and faster over the bent trees with the high, shaking hurricane rumble that sounds exactly like the never-ending passing of a freight train. She goes on to write uh, about the uh, relief effort, quote, It was a strange and lonely tragedy. The keys were completely cut off from the mainland. The bridge was out over the swirling current at Snake Creek. In Miami, nobody knew what had happened. As in the Keys, the injured, hung up in trees, died of thirst without help. It rained hard all Tuesday, so that the living people crawling about dazed could collect rain, water, and buckets. The cisterns were choked with debris and fouling salt water. So it gives you an idea of just uh, the, the environment at that time. Uh, even the survivors wouldn't have even recognized the, the landscape. It was just completely devastating. A harrowing story, and of course, we still have to deal with hurricanes here in Florida today. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. The Ku Klux Klan has had a long and sordid history in Florida. As Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com reports, the KKK staged public parades, infiltrated the government, and committed acts of terrorism well into the 20th century. The uh, Ku Klux Klan, uh, the so-called reborn Klan of the 1920s, uh, actually came into being in 1915. Uh, at the same time that D.W. Griffith uh, released his film Birth of a Nation uh, based on several racist novels uh, written much earlier in the century. And uh, a defrocked minister in Atlanta, Georgia, named William uh, Joseph Simmons, uh, who had been recruiting for various other fraternal organizations, uh, Woodmen of the World and the Elks and the Oddfellows and so forth, was uh, hit by this idea that he could revive the Klan primarily as a 
patriotic and fraternal order and, incidentally, make a financial killing. That was Michael Newton, author of The Invisible Empire, The Ku Klux Klan in Florida. I talked to him about the emergence of the new Klan in Florida after the 1910s. Here, he tells me the difference between the 19th and 20th century organizations that took the name of the Klan. The original uh, Ku Klux Klan of the Reconstruction era was basically a militant or paramilitary resistance movement against so-called radical reconstruction aligned with the Democratic Party of the South at that time, or as they called themselves, capital C conservatives. And uh, in their terms, it eventually redeemed the South for white home rule. The 20th century Klan uh, ended up going nationwide. Uh, it was affiliated with both political parties, uh, primarily Democrats in the South and Republicans in the North. Uh, it was, to a large extent, a fraternal organization. Pretty soon went into politics so that various individuals who wanted to run for office found in certain states with large Klan concentrations that it was to their benefit to join, and they included various governors, congressmen, U.S. senators, and allegedly at least a couple of uh, future presidents. Whereas the original Klan was primarily rural and made up of Confederate veterans, the modern Klan cut across all social lines and included what were then called the best people of the South, including many professional individuals, doctors, uh, politicians, lawyers, and hundreds of Protestant ministers. In the 1920s, the Klan was widespread and a national phenomenon. Although there was the public face of the Klan that is captured in parade photos in the 1920s and beyond, there was also the secret Klan that carried out violence and terror to intimidate civil rights activists, immigrants, and all kinds of people who disagreed with the Klan. Well, there was definitely a conflict between the Klan's oath of secrecy and the way it operated in real life, especially during the 1920s, when estimates of uh, the membership range anywhere from 2 million to 9 million, and most historians concede 4 or 5 million members nationwide. You weren't supposed to talk about your membership if you were a Klansman, but it was widely known uh, in many areas. And the publication of the literature was actually, to some extent, a money-making scheme because Klansmen were also urged or ordered to subscribe to the various Klan newspapers and to purchase these little rule booklets along with their robes and uh, flags and various other paraphernalia. All of the money made its way back to the uh, state headquarters and then eventually a share went to Atlanta. Michael Newton tells me what distinguished the Klan in Florida in the 20th century to other Klan movements around the country. One thing that made the uh, Florida Klan stand apart from the revived Klan of the 1920s and uh, 30s was its longevity. Uh, it, uh, they grew a fairly large membership in a relatively short time, and when some of the other Klan states began to fade out in 1926-27, uh, and then even more so after the Democrats uh, nominated Catholic Al Smith for president in 1928, Florida actually maintained a larger or higher level of its membership than many of the surrounding states, and hung on really into the 1940s and then enjoyed a pretty brisk revival uh, with quite a bit of violence in the early 1950s uh, when other states didn't really catch on with the new Klan until after 1954 or 55 with the uh, Supreme Court's Brown ruling on school segregation. That was Michael Newton, 
I interviewed him and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida. Find it on iTunes and YouTube. I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and follow us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.